Well, good morning. It's good to see you here this morning. We're going to be talking about the Bible from the Bible. And so I went to my office and I found the absolute biggest Bible that I could find. And uh, we'll start this morning. You could start by turning to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. That'll be our foundational passage, and we're going to get there in just a minute. But uh, before we do, just a few months ago, I had the opportunity to meet someone that had been on a game show. It had been a longtime dream of one of my sister's friends to be on the game show Jeopardy. And uh, we'd gotten to know this lady through the years, and she's a very nice, dedicated Christian lady named Beth. And uh, she'd been trying since 1996 to get on the game show Jeopardy. And I guess 1% of those who actually take the test actually get on the game show. And so on a Friday, this, the, the first Friday of this last July, uh, my family was gathered around the TV and we were cheering Beth on. And uh, on Beth's right side was the returning champion and on her left side was a very smart lady who was answering most of the questions. And uh, she was giving Beth some very, very stiff competition. And uh, Beth was doing very well, though. But then round two came up. And one of the categories was the Bible. And uh, she started, and she's a dedicated Christian lady. She knows her Bible well. And she started at the top of the column, I'll take the Bible for 200, Alex. Boom, got that right. I'll take the Bible for 400, Alex. Boom, that right. All the way down the column. She was back in the game, and it was like the Super Bowl at my house. My kids were jumping around, and we were, she got all the Bible questions right. She got all the Bible questions right. And then, no lie, Alex Trebek says this. Aren't you glad you read your Bible? So this morning, I could give you a quotation from a brilliant Bible scholar, but today, I give you the quotation from a game show host. Aren't you glad you read your Bible? I have to tell you, she got second place, but it was worth it to watch her, just to hear Alex say that. And she did tell me a few weeks ago, she got some excellent consolation prizes. But if for a moment you would rewind 200 years, you know it's easy to take or it's easy to take our Bible for granted. But if you re would rewind with me, I'm sorry, 600 years, I'm going to tell you the story of an individual, not a game show host, but he was a preacher at that time, and his nickname was Goose. His nickname came from the meaning of his actual name, which was John Huss. And uh, earlier this summer, while I was on vacation, I picked up a book called uh, Rescuing the Gospel by Erwin Lutzer, and I, I became involved in the story of this man named uh, John Huss, and he was born, Bert, he was born dirt poor. Uh, he was very smart, and he ended up graduating from the University of Prague and eventually ended up teaching there. It was 100 years after his death that Martin Luther referred to him and he said, the goose was cooked. And that phrase has stuck with us to this day. 
But Huss became a preacher and did something very unusual for his day. He preached in the people's language instead of Latin, which is helpful, isn't it? And for whatever reason, he, the church at that day felt threatened by that. He was influenced by another great man, John uh, Wycliffe from England, who was translating the Bible into his own people's language at that time as well. And uh, the church felt threatened by John Huss, so they told him he was forbidden to preach, but he kept on preaching. And he proclaimed that the Bible was the final authority for all things spiritual. But he lived in a day when the leaders in the church did not want people to know and to understand the Bible. And uh, they did not want to be challenged by the authority of the Bible. So on July 6, 1415, was the day that the goose was martyred. He was taken to the cathedral in Prague and he was dressed fully in his preacher's garments at the time. And then he was stripped of those garments piece by piece. That was to show that he was being excommunicated from the church. And the council that presided over the defrocking then demanded that he be doused in oil and burned at the stake. And he prayed this, Lord Jesus, it is for you that I patiently endure this cruel death. Have mercy on my enemies. As the flames consumed his body, he was heard singing the Psalms. His executioners were so afraid of what might happen if his charred body remained that they scooped up all the ashes and they put them in a local lake so his remains could not be kept. His followers continued on in his teaching and they eventually became a group known as the Moravian Brethren out of which a great mission movement started in that day and also influenced John Wesley, who many of you know about. But before John Huss was killed, he said something very interesting. He said, you may kill this goose, referring to himself, but he said, in 100 years, a swan will arise. It was 100 years later that Martin Luther found John Huss's handwritten sermon notes, and he read them, and he said this, I was overwhelmed with astonishment. I couldn't understand for what cause they had hurt so great a man who explained the scriptures with such gravity and, and skill. You see, the, the swan had arrived and the church was never the same again. But just hearing that story made me wonder for myself, do I really appreciate the gift that is given to me in God's word the Bible. And today, you know, we can talk about the great doctrines of the Reformation and Scripture with, with ease, but it's been rightly said that those doctrines sailed to our generation on bloody seas. Because hundreds and thousands were threatened. Hundreds were tortured and killed, believing these things and then teaching them. So, this morning, what's your level of appreciation for the book that you can hold in your hands this morning as you sit in church? Have you, have you worn out the pages of your Bible 
in appreciation of what it has done. You know, uh, it's been said that a Bible that is falling apart is a sign of a life that isn't. And I was amazed to discover that in a recent survey, 47% of American adults believe the Bible is inspired by God. 50% of college graduates believe that the Bible is inspired by God. But if we were to be honest, we'd have to admit that there's a bit of a disconnect between what people say about the Bible and what people do with the Bible. The same study reported that nearly half of those who claim the Bible, uh, who, nearly half of those who claim to read the Bible couldn't even name the first four Gospels of the New Testament. And so we asked this morning, what's, what's the place of, of the Bible? What, what's it to have in our lives? And what difference can the Bible make in a person's life, in a church's life, in a city's life, in a nation's life? What's the place of the Bible? And to answer those questions, a good place to start is Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. This is a fantastic verse. Many of you have memorized this verse. Follow along with me as we read it. It says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the vision of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. There is, there is nothing that compares to the Bible. Nothing. And you can stack up all the greatest books throughout all of history, and you can look at their content, and you can consider their influence, and then you would have to go and place the Bible in a completely different category. Because nothing compares to the Bible. It's a supernatural book. It is God-breathed. We know, um, we know this because the Bible tells us about itself and what, we believe, uh, what we're to believe about the Bible. And you won't find actually the, the word Bible mentioned in Scripture itself. The name that we've given to this book is the Bible, but in, in the Bible itself it talks about God's word, or in the book of Psalms it talks about the law or the counsel of God. In Jesus' day it talked about the law and the prophets. And so this morning, uh, we take a look at this verse, and we see what the Bible says about itself, and then we want to examine three basic areas of application and their implication for our life and for ministry together. So, because Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, it makes some staggering claims about God's word. And the implication is that there are certain things that the Bible is very effective at accomplishing. And that's why at the top of the outline in your bulletin this morning, we've, we've said it like this. The Bible is the tool, all capital letters, T-H-E. The Bible is the tool. The effects of the Bible are so far-reaching, so staggering, that we cannot accurately say that the Bible is simply a tool. Or one of many tools. Because that would understate its importance. So the, the Bible is the tool. Because on a practical level, what could we know about God apart from God's word? What could we know about Jesus Christ apart from God's word? What could we know about right and wrong apart from God's word? 
The word of God is something powerful. It says it's living, active, sharper than a two-edged sword. God's word is the tool. And if you were to come up to me this morning and say, I need to go mow my lawn, and then you go out to your shed and you grab a chainsaw, we would say, you've got the wrong tool for the job. There's no way you're going to cut your lawn with a chainsaw. Although, some of us would like to see you try, actually. You see, the Bible is the right tool to do very specific things. First of all, we see that the Bible is the right tool for, number one, for an unbeliever to be saved. The Bible is the right tool, it's the tool for the unbeliever to be saved. The first thing it says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, is it says that God's word is living. God's word is living. It's... Um, it's full of vitality. Some of, some of your translations might say quick, which is an old English transla translation that means living. The Bible's full of vitality. And when God's word is described as living, it means two things. That it itself is full of life. And it also means that it has the ability to impart life to those who are spiritually dead. Jesus said in John chapter 6, 63, Jesus' words, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. 1 Peter 1, 23 says, you have been born again, not by perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. James 1, 18 says, of his own will he begot us, by the word of truth. Psalm 119 verse 50 says, Your word has given me life. And if you're a Christian here this morning, it's because there was a time that God breathed new life into you. And he did it through his word. Romans 10, 17 says, Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. I remember as a kid on a good Friday, our family was reading the story of the crucifixion, and I became convicted of my sins through the reading of God's word. And as a young person, I knelt on my knees and I invited Christ into my life and surrendered my life to him because of the work that God was doing to save me through his word. And all Christians really have a similar story, maybe slightly different details, but uh, you could have responded to someone teaching God's word and surrendered your life to Christ. Maybe you were reading the Bible yourself and you surrendered your life to Christ. Or maybe someone was explaining God's word to you so that you could understand the gospel and surrender your life to Christ. There's a story of a man in the book of Acts. He was from Ethiopia. He's known as the Ethiopian eunuch. And he was traveling through Jerusalem and he was reading the book of Isaiah. And God sent Philip the evangelist to him. And he asked this man, do you understand what you're reading? And the man responded, how can I unless someone guides me? And so then it says, Philip opened his mouth and beginning with the scripture in Isaiah, he told him the good news about Jesus. And so, shortly after that, he was baptized as a new believer. See, God's word is the mean by which a person comes to faith in Christ. God's word is living. 
It has the ability to impart life to those who are spiritually dead. And with anything, we know that there are cycles and there are fashions and there are fads that come and go. And there are times when people are eager to hear God's word. And then there are times where people are not eager to hear God's word. And we could take a survey this morning and we could ask, do you think we live in a time where people are eager to hear God's word? Maybe, uh, I don't know what the response would be and we might have different opinions. But it's an important question to ask. How do we respond when people are not as eager and when we live in a time when people are not as receptive to God's word? And Paul, in speaking to Timothy, addressed this issue. He said, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth. And what is Paul's response? Because there was a number of things that he could have done. He could have said, well, people don't like the message. How about we change the message? He didn't do that. Paul could have said, you know what? We're living in a time when people don't respond well to the message. Let's mute the message. Let's take out those parts that people don't like, and let's keep the parts that they do like. He didn't do that. What did he do? He said, there's, there's just one, there's just one tool for the job. He said in the verse right before that, he said to Timothy, preach the word. Preach the word in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. You see, the tool is always God's word. The tool is always God's word. Preach the word. You don't change the tool for the job based on fashion and fad and culture. And do you remember that time in Jesus' ministry when people were leaving his ministry some people who called themselves his disciples. And then he turns to the twelve and he says, are you going to leave me as well? And do you remember Peter's response? He says, where else do we have to go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And if the response is not what we'd hoped, where else do we have to go? Because the Bible is the only place that has the words of eternal life. This is good news, and if we could just step back for just, just a second and ask ourselves, what's the implication of a life-giving quality to God's Word? What does that mean for us? If, if God's Word is living, what's the significance? This is the good news, is you go out and you share your faith. You see, the main goal in evangelism, in your outline, the main goal in evangelism is not to be clever, but to be clear and convincing. If God's word is really alive, our goal is not to be clever, but to be clear and convincing. You see, when, when the going gets tough in sharing your faith, there is going to be a great temptation to look for a gimmick. What's a gimmick? In, in business, a gimmick is a trick or a device 
that's used to attract business or attention. And our world is full of gimmicks. Do you remember as a kid that they'd hide the gimmick in the bottom of the cereal box for the kids? Do you remember that? And kids would have to eat all the cereal to get down to the little toy that was there. And parents are scratching their heads and they're saying, is my child eating the cereal to get to the toy? Or are they eating the cereal because they like the cereal? Take away the gimmick and you've got your answer, right? And when times are tough in sharing the gospel, there's a great temptation to look for a gimmick. But there's a problem with placing a gimmick beside the gospel. First of all, it communicates that you don't believe in your product. Right? It cheapens the gospel. And secondly, Paul said it like this in 1 Corinthians 2, 4, and 5. And my message and my preaching were very plain. Rather than using clever and persuasive speeches, I relied only on the power of the Holy Spirit. I did this so you would trust not in human wisdom, but in the power of God. See, gimmicks can cause someone to trust a person instead of God. And Paul said, I don't want to take a chance. He even said, I did this. He was being intentional to make sure that he didn't do what he knew would lead them to a false sense of security. And in, in, first, in 2 Corinthians 2.17, he said it like this, For we are not like many, for we are not like so many, who are peddlers, peddlers of God's word. Paul didn't want to peddle the gospel. Paul didn't want to peddle the gospel. He didn't want to connect a gimmick to the gospel because he wanted to be a proclaimer, not a peddler. What's the difference between a proclaimer and a peddler? Well, I've heard the difference. Here's some words I've heard to describe peddlers. Peddlers are subtle. Peddlers are clever. They're strategic. A peddler is a huckster. A peddler baits and switches. A peddler fears rejection, withholds information or distorts the facts to convince someone. On the other hand, what's a proclaimer? A proclaimer is different. These are words that describe a proclaimer. They're plain. They're simple. They're direct. A proclaimer is sincere, open, bold. And what you see is what you get with a proclaimer. And a, a proclaimer understands what a peddler does not. He understands that God's word is alive. It doesn't need to be, to be propped up. It doesn't need to be substituted. It doesn't need to be nuanced because it's alive and it gives life. It gives life to those who are spiritually dead. You know, God's word does not need a mortician to make it look alive because it's not dead. It's alive. It's full of life and it's life-giving. So first of all, the Bible's the right tool 
for an unbeliever to be saved. Secondly, the Bible is the right tool for something else. The, the Bible's the right tool, number two, for society to flourish. The Bible is the right tool for society to flourish. Hebrews 4, 12 says, not only that the word of God is alive, but it's also active. And some of your translations might use the word powerful. The word has the idea of energy as if it's always working, it's always effective, it's active, it's powerful, it's full of energy. The word is always working and it works. When its principles are applied over it, a time, it works for a person, it works for a church, it works for a city, it works for a state, it works for a nation, it works. Abraham Lincoln said this, in regard to this great book, I have but to say, it is the best gift God has given to man. All the good the Savior gave to the world was communicated through this book. But for it, we would not know right from wrong. All things most desirable for man's welfare here and hereafter are to be found, are to be found portrayed in it. It's honest Abe. <laughs> he knew the effect that Bible, the Bible would have on society. And one of the reasons... We know the Bible is active and powerful is that it is, a, it is opposed so strongly by its enemies. The enemies of the Bible know what it is capable of, even if they're not willing to admit it. It was just a few weeks ago that a pastor from California was planning a massive outreach event to fill Angel Stadium and uh, they've been doing this for 29 years, and they were hoping for as many as 100,000 people over three nights. And so, they, in an effort to promote this event, they, they rented a series of billboards. And on one of the billboards, it had this image. It was the image of a pastor holding a Bible. The image of a pastor holding a Bible but the real estate company that owns a very popular mall in Southern California said it began to receive multiple complaints over people that were offended by the image of a Bible. And they said they began to receive serious threats. And so, as a result, the advertising company decided to remove the series of billboards of a man and a Bible from the mall. Wow. What's all the fuss? What's all the fuss? Maybe this is all the fuss because a few days later at the event, over the course of three nights, over 100,000 people attended the event. 74,000 people watched online. 267,000 people watched on Facebook Live. And over 10,000 professions of faith as a result of that event. No wonder people didn't want the Bible displayed on a billboard. No wonder. If the Bible was full of myths, no one would care about it on a billboard. The enemies, <laughs> no. And we... We live in a society where the Bible's everywhere, don't we? 
You ever notice that? I mean, you go to your hotel room, and in the drawer by the phone, there's the Bible. You go to the internet, you can, you can, up comes the Bible, and it's in bookstores. It's posted on Facebook. It's even on some of the monuments that we have, and leaders put their hand on the Bible when they're sworn into office. It seems to be everywhere. But is that how the Bible changes society? It takes a little something more than that, doesn't it? For the Bible to change society. kind of reminds me of, well, it's actually, as a result, the Bible will affect society under one condition. That's if you listen to it. Reminds me of the story of one of our presidents, Franklin D. Roosevelt. And President Roosevelt had often had to endure long receiving lines at the White House. And he complained that no one paid any attention to what he said as they go through these lines. So one day he conducted an experiment as he was there. And to each person who passed down the line and shook his hand, he murmured, I murdered my grandmother this morning. And so the guests responded with words like, Marvelous! Keep up the good work! We're proud of you! God bless you, sir! Until the end of the line, while getting, while he was greeting the ambassador to Bolivia, he actually heard his words. And the ambassador leaned over and whispered, I'm sure she had it coming. <laughs> you know, there's a, there's a reason that throughout the New Testament, Jesus said, he who has an ear, let him hear. Because few there be that listen. And if the Bible is to have its effect on society, it needs to be listened to. And it, it, The Bible will help clean up all the lies that society and culture are telling us. And just this morning, I wanted to quickly list three of them in the Bible's response. Lies that are destroying our culture right now as we speak. This might be the biggest one, the first one. Seeking pleasure will make you happy. How destructive has that been to our culture? There's a whole book of the Bible dedicated to that subject, the book of Ecclesiastes. It says, I said to myself, come now, let's try pleasure. Let's look for the good things in life. But I found that that was meaningless. Instead, Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. You see, the Bible helps to clean up the lies of society. The second lie, men don't need men, women don't need women. I was listening to a discussion a few weeks ago with conservative commentator Dennis Prager, and he said, we live in an age of stupidity where everything has to be co-ed. It kind of made me laugh, but I thought, you know, it's kind of true. Men are forgetting men's roles and women are forgetting women's roles and the, line, the lines of gender are being confused to the point we are, we're just forgetting how much men need men and women need women. Fathers need sons and sons need fathers. Daughters need mothers. We're told that maybe the greatest social problem we face today is absentee fathers in the home. And as a result, we see the negative, the negative results. And there's very appropriate times when men need to get together and focus on 
issues that men need to focus on and be men, and women the same, and be women, and come together and disciple. In the book of Titus, Paul told the older women to, to teach and train up the younger women. For the older men to be examples and to teach the younger men. How would that change society if we listened to that? The other lie is that society is telling us that nothing is sacred. Nothing is sacred. It's a lie. And if nothing is sacred, then nothing is special. If nothing is special, then there's nothing that needs to be worshipped. Nothing to stand in awe of because all there is is stardust. No mystery, no reverence, because the thing that is sacred points above and beyond to the person seeking to understand it. And when all that's gone, there's little to live for. And that's why for the last 16 years, teen suicide has been on the rise. People are wondering, what is the point of their life? But the Bible says that life is sacred. We're created in, by God, every person, born and unborn, created in the image of God. That's why murder is unthinkable. The Bible says that marriage is sacred. Two becoming one before God in a holy, sacred union. The Bible says that family is sacred. Children are to obey and honor parents. The Bible says the church is sacred. Jesus Christ, its very head. You know, your worship is sacred before God. You see, the Bible is the tool to make society flourish. The Bible is the tool to make society flourish. If we're willing to listen, it's the right tool for the job. Number three this morning. The Bible is the right tool for an unbeliever to be saved. The Bible is the right tool for a society to flourish. But number three, the Bible is the right tool, the tool for a believer to grow. The Bible is the right tool for a believer to grow. Hebrews chapter 4, 12 says it's sharper than a two-edged sword. It pierces the division of soul and spirit. It's a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It compares the Bible to a two-edged sword. In fact, it says it's, it's sharper than a two-edged sword. Any way it swings, it cuts. Any way it swings. It penetrates deep down. It reveals motivations. It touches the core of our being. It comforts. It convicts. It encourages it's like the scalpel that does the fine surgery to the core of our being to make us whole. And as a Christian, the more you dig into God's word, the more you will grow. The immaterial part of you will be transformed as you dig into it. In a sense, it's kind of like the Bible is, is a movie critic that goes in and it looks at our life and says, that's, that's good, that's not good. That's good. That's not good. It makes those, those value statements of our own life and the word there for thoughts actually means deep thoughts. You can walk into church this morning. No one knows what you're thinking, but the Bible has an ability to penetrate in and to touch those thoughts. Sometimes you might not even know your thinking, but the Bible has a way to bring it to the surface so that it can address what it needs to address 
in your life. It's like good medicine. Sometimes it doesn't taste so good going down, but it does its work, and it does its job. It helps us to grow. Paul said it like this in, in Thessalonians, to the Thessalonian believers, 1 Thessalonians 2.13, and we also thank God constantly for this, for when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, and then he says this, which is at work in you believers. What's at work in the believers? The word of God. <laughs> it's at work in the believer, in, in the believers, the word of God. Do you know how to grow every day? In God's word, it's those small steps you take. See, growth rarely happens in giant leaps, but it usually happens in many small steps that you make day by day. If the Bible is going to make a difference in your life, it's going to be the decision that you make throughout the day to put yourself in contact with God's word. Small decisions every day add up to a big difference in your life as God uses it to change as you put yourself in uh, contact with God's word. And as we close this morning, I just have a few questions to challenge us and to think as we close this morning. But are you reading your Bible every day? Have you set a goal for yourself to be in God's word, to think about it, to meditate in it, to let it transform you? Are you reading God's word together with your family? If God's put people in your house around you, those who you're in close contact with, are you, are you getting together and reading God's word together with them so that together you can discuss it and together you can let it make a difference in your life? Are you taking time to go deeper into God's word and it could be memorizing it, maybe being a part of a ladies' Bible study or being a part of a small group or listening to your favorite Bible expositor or preacher and getting deeper and doing some study on your own and really examining it and thinking about it and meditating on it. Because the Word of God is supposed to be the greatest treasure that we have, greater than any earthly possession. We should treasure it in our hearts. And if you're doing that this week, we can all come back and say, aren't you glad you read your Bible? Aren't you glad you read your Bible? And this is the best part, and with this we close. Did you know that Jesus has a special name? John 1, Jesus is called the Word. He's a revelation of who God is, being God himself. And the more you get into the written word of God, the more you will get to know the living word of God, Jesus Christ. To know the first is to also know the second. And so as you dig into God's word, you are cultivating a relationship with the very one who created you. It's God's love letter to you. It's not just words. They're living, they're active, they're at work in your life, and it's building that relationship so that you can know the Savior. Isn't that the best opportunity 
we have as believers today to get into God's word so that we might know our Savior, Jesus Christ. Would you join me in prayer this morning? Father, we, we come before you this morning and we, we realize that often in our lives we don't show the appreciation that we need to for the gifts that you've given to us in life. And you've given us friends, you've given us a church, you've given us freedom, you've given us safety, you've given us all these things, Lord, but they pale in comparison to the gift of your word that's at work in our lives that gives us exactly what we need, that comforts us, encourages us, challenges us. It's the good medicine that we need in our lives to share with others, to apply to the world around us and the situations that we find ourselves in, and then also for us to grow spiritually before you. We thank you that it's alive, that it's powerful, that we can testify that we stand before you as children of God because of the work that you've done in our lives by drawing us to you in faith through your word. We thank you for the promises that are in your word that you'll never leave us nor forsake us. That you know the end from the beginning. That one day you're going to return and receive your own unto yourself. So many promises that we can claim and, and thank you for because your word is powerful. We've seen it evidenced in our own lives by the changes that you are accomplishing by your grace in our lives through your word. We thank you for it. We pray this in Jesus' name.